Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Melissa S. May of Vandenberg County presiding. With the Honorable Elaine B. Brown of Du Bois County and the Honorable Peter R. Foley of Morgan County. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be back in my old stomping grounds, and I will have to say Tyrone's is just as good as it's ever been. Um, so we are here today in the case of Bomber versus State. Ms. Uliana, um, you have reserved five minutes for rebuttal, and I notice your co-counsel, Jack Kenny, welcome. Uh, Justin Rebell for the State. You have no rebuttal, so um, I guess at this point, we are ready to proceed. Council, the case is with you. May it please the court. In Walensky v. State, the Indiana Supreme Court said, the day is all the past for attorneys must shout legal advice to their clients, both in custody through the jailhouse door. Nowadays, we have cell phones. Those are portable, they are quick, and they're full of information. So when a citizen of Indiana is being asked to do one of those important things that is waived in constitutional right, and they want to try to contact their attorney, they should have the reasonable opportunity to do so. But that was before the breath test was administered or, or any kind of a chemical test. And is there any case that says you've got the right to consult with counsel prior to the administration of a chemical test to test for intoxication in Indiana? But before you, you answer that, and I want, her, I want her to answer it, but could you just give us a brief rundown of the facts since we're here in this audience and not everybody may be that familiar with it? And, sure. and it, it leads right into that question. Sorry, Judge Brown. I just so on March 29, 2021, around 3.30, uh, Chris Bauman was involved in a very serious accident that resulted in serious bodily injury to a motorcyclist. Based on some statements that Mr. Bauman made at the scene, the police believed that this may be a criminal investigation. So they read in Miranda, they handcuffed him, and they put him in the back of the police And part of Miranda is telling him that he has the right to counsel. So uh, while he was in the back of that cruiser handcuffed, he did try to invoke that right twice. First, he told the uh, deputy, could you please tell my wife to call my attorney? The deputy said he did. He um, told Chris Bauman yes, but he didn't. Uh, second, uh, he asked uh, the deputy uh, if he could talk to his attorney when the deputy told him that he either has to consent to a blood draw or he will lose his license for uh, one year. The deputy told Mr. Bauman he did not have that right. Uh, then Bauman ultimately consented to the blood draw and his attorney moved to suppress it on multiple grounds, really arguing that it was an involuntary consent for many reasons. But most importantly, and I think the one we really want to talk about here today, is his invocation of his right to counsel. Okay, but, so, so now my question. Right, is, I believe it was, is there any Indian case that holds, and I assume we're going under the Indian Constitution, Article 1, Section 13, if there's a right to counsel. At, at, that, at that stage, yes. And I think the answer is we haven't gotten there yet. So no, and this is a, a case of first impression. 
Because here we are in a case where a person is actually invoking the right. And that's different than the line of Pearl, right? Pearl is a prophylactic rule that if you are in a certain situation, you have uh, the right to have advisements given to you, that you have the right to counsel. That's different than saying, hey, I want to talk to my attorney. That's an invocation of the right to counsel. Are you relying in part on in your argument on the fact that he was given Miranda rights and maybe those were unnecessary at the point in time he was given them? That's part of it. I mean, there's a lot here that's very layered and escalating type of a <coughs> situation. But yes, I mean, being a loser and you're put in the back of a cramped cruiser and you're handcuffed and you're told you have a right to counsel, and then you try to invoke that right, and you're like, eh, not really, you don't have a right to counsel. There's something inherently wrong about that, and I believe that that's unreasonable too under Article 1, Section 11. But, but maybe a worst case scenario is the police officer gave too many advisements. What it wasn't necessary, necessarily required at that point in time that he be Mirandized, right? But and maybe he did, and I don't think he had probable cause, but the point is he did it. And when you do that, you are conveying to the person that's handcuffed, you are under arrest, right? And so you have these advisements. I mean, think about it on TV. Every time someone's arrested, they're given those advisements. That is a clear signal to Mr. Bauman that you are under arrest and therefore you have these rights. And it's just, it's inconsistent with our broader constitutional provisions of Article 1, Section 11 and Article 1, Section 13, the medicine, and not really. So if an individual is arrested after failing portable breath tests in an intoxication case on the side of the road and is now being taken to the police station for a chemical test, at that point, does he have the right to consult with his lawyer? If he requests it, I think he does. So I would direct the court's attention to Oregon, and it's in the reply brief. Um, they have the exact same Article 1, Section 13 that we do, but I think there's a section left, right? It's, you know, be heard by your consultant counsel. And they have interpreted just like we have, broader. And they have held that in this situation, if a person invokes their right to counsel, they have the reasonable opportunity to do so. But, but let me ask you, in, in the context of the, the implied consent, uh, there's a statute that has a time frame, a three-hour time frame in which the test must be admit, administered to the suspect uh, in order for it to be admissible in court, correct? Uh, half an hour. It, it can still be admissible, but in order to get the extrapolation back to the time of driving, you have to do it okay. in three hours. Right, right. So... For most instances, the utility of it would, would relate within that three hours. So then is if we invoke the, the right to counsel, um, how does that uh, square with the ticking time uh, that you may have with the three hour? I think it's a reasonable opportunity. So this has been going on since like 1988 in Oregon, and then I cited some other states that have the rule too. I think in Arizona since 1960s. They haven't had a big problem, right? So a reasonable opportunity in Oregon has been held to be about 15 minutes. And, you know, Judge Bowling, you were on the trial bench for years, and I'm sure you've gotten those midnight calls from police officers needing warrants. Technology is an amazing thing. And within those three hours, you have time to use that technology. The police have time to use the technology. They do it all the time. I think suspects should have that same right to use technology to try and contact an attorney to understand their rights. And I say that especially in a situation like this, 
where Ms. Baldwin, um, there was not probable cause that there was any intoxication in this case. And so what he's waiving is not just the warrant requirement, it's the right to probable cause. I mean, the police is, are asking him to give up the farm, right? I mean, if you, in an OWI case, if they have your blood, you're done. Because they don't have to prove impairment. All they need to show is that there's a substance in there. He could have went three miles west and smoked marijuana a week ago, and he would still be in trouble. And they're asking him to do that, and they're punishing his failure to not do um, with a license suspension when they have no probable cause at all. So right? he's nervous, he's fidgety, he's sweating, he's given two different stories about what happened, one of which is a lie. Um, don't circumstances like that give rise to probable cause? Not of intoxication. You know, when the police officer was asked directly of what evidence of intoxication, he said that Mr. Baldwin slurred at first, but that could have been nerves because it all, you know, went away over time. And if you watch the video, you can see that Mr. Baldwin is very cooperative. Uh, and he volunteered the statement that he was following the, uh, the man on the motorcycle. How much time took um, place from the time that the police got there until the time that he was asked to consent to a, a blood test? So the deputy who asked him to consent, I think it was around 37 minutes on his body cam. And he probably got there a little bit, I don't know, a few minutes after the breath. I'm not quite sure. So let's just say between 35 and 40 minutes. And is the whole conversation about the blood test and his request, um, Mr. Bauman's request, is that all on uh, body cam or is it just testimony? No, it's on body cam. Okay. It should be watched because you should see him. He's like shoved in the back of this uh, cruiser and it, maybe it's a Jeep or something. And he's like eating his knees. And that's why he's very uncomfortable. And he's like saying, I need water. It's hot here. This is moving through my shoulders. Well, <laughs> but he also, in that same confined space, moved the cuffs from his back underneath him to his front, right? Correct. Yeah, no space to do that. You should watch it. I've watched it. I've watched it. Because, like, how did you do that? I agree, but I, 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 but it was... And I did that. You know, but he very clearly asserted his right Let me maybe focus in on, on the nature of the challenge you have. Um, so the challenge, is it under Chapter 7, which is the, the, the um, implied consent statute that deals with an accident involving serious bodily injury or death, and there's no probable, or um, um, under that statute is what um, uh, the state used in this instance. Is your challenge to that to the statute or just the facts and circumstances, in other words, that surrounded the consent and, and the request for counsel in this individual case based on these specific facts? That's a good question, and it's both, and it's later. You know, the first uh, challenge... Well, that makes it harder for us, right? <laughs> That's why we do it all. But um, the first challenge was a, you know, two under Brookfield, you have to analyze applied consent laws under reasonableness, and I believe that it is reasonable when you totally lack probable cause, like our statute doesn't require probable cause, and you're asking someone to give up both probable cause and warrant, and you're punishing that. That's the first argument. 
Now, if this court were to disagree with me, then we go to the involuntariness of the consent based on the circumstances here. And I think the most important circumstance is the fact that Mr. Baldwin repeatedly tried to exercise his right to counsel. He gave an attorney. He had his wife there. He had multiple ways of exercising that right. And it's at 3.30 in the afternoon. This is not like in the middle of the night or anything. He had the right to try to talk to his counsel. And putting the U.S. Court in that back of the cruiser, whether that was right or wrong, it prevented him the ability to call his attorney. Let me ask you this question. With respect to the three-hour limit, doesn't that limit really kind of go out the window when we're talking about a drug other than alcohol? Because we know alcohol is metabolized in the system at a certain rate. But as you said earlier, THC and other things that are in the body can stay there for a long time. So the three-hour limit that we talk about, doesn't that make that kind of illusory in this kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, it would. And, I mean, maybe that's what the deputy was thinking, too, because in this case, there was no evidence of it. He didn't reek of alcohol, in other words. Right. And that's probably why he didn't do the breath test. He went for the broader, more intrusive test that, you know, also shows controlled substances. So, yeah, I don't think the three-hour limit matters as much in this case when we're talking about a blood draw and no evidence of intoxication. Is that three-hour limit statutory? I believe it is. Okay. So, you know, and I think the fact he's in custody also really matters here. Right? I mean, the custody is what prevents him from calling the police. And if you're going to prevent him in that manner from doing that, you should let him have the opportunity. And also, this is a critical stage, right? Because there's a lot of legal intricacies, hence the long reefs in this case. And a reasonable person like Mr. Baldwin doesn't know that the police need probable cause to get his blood. He doesn't know that they may lack probable cause. He doesn't know that they need a warrant to get it. He may not even know that if he used drugs three days earlier, that he may still be on the hook for a level five felony. This is really, really the type of thing that the Indiana Constitution talks to. Right? You have the right to know the circumstances of what you're facing and what you're giving up. And he was denied that right. And he knew enough in his mind, I need to talk to someone here. This could be a big decision. So when the police officer told him, we can get a search warrant, was the police officer being correct? Because was there probable cause at that time for a search warrant for a blood test? Well, he didn't say we can get a search warrant, right? So he would apply for it. Apply for it. He may be mad on you too, right? But he can apply for it. I mean, that's correct. But I don't think he would have gotten it. I did not see any evidence of intoxication, and he did not show any. So it's one thing to have probable cause, and I'm not sure that he did. But let's just say they had probable cause of reckless driving or some kind of intentional act. That still does not provide probable cause, that evidence of that crime that you found in your blood. That requires some kind of evidence of intoxication. So, you know, is this a type of case where a harmless error analysis would be advisable or probable? I don't think so. I think in this type of thing, this would be more like an inevitable discovery. It would be kind of like a harmless error in a suppression type issue. But an inevitable discovery, I'm not sure even applies in Indiana. And it's never been argued. And here, they didn't have the probable cause they needed to get his blood. 
again, he gave up everything when they had nothing. So eventually, in, in your mind, it comes back to probable cause, regardless of whether or not there was a consent. Because in, in, in your argument, the consent was involuntary. He was kind of pushed into it. Well, it was involuntary because of multiple stacking of the pressure. And go ahead and go ahead and answer the question. Okay. And uh, some of that's related on probable cause. I mean, he was told that he loses license. He was put confined when I don't think they had probable cause. And that he was denied his right to an attorney, which would apply whether they had probable cause or didn't have probable cause. Okay. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Rebell, the case is with you. This is a simple case of a defendant who accepted to a blood draw, causing a collision involving a serious bodily injury. Bowman was detained after admitting he drove over Lonnie Gibson, and Bowman was read the implied consent provision of five when there is a serious bodily injury. Or death. Bauman was asked to submit to a chemical test and the result of refusal would result in a license suspension and an infraction. Following that accurate explanation of Indiana law, Bauman chose to provide a blood sample. Well, it's really a simple case until we throw in the Miranda warning and his asking for attorney. And doesn't that change it from a little bit of a, hey, this is an absolutely simple case to it's a little bit more complicated in a case of first impression? I would call it a case of first impression. There are multiple cases that I've already talked about. No right to counsel during a traffic stop, during a request for a uh, chemical test or a blood draw. And in fact, um, in Gibbs in 1983, this uh, court even dealt directly with the idea of what happens if they ask for counsel during the informed consent. And uh, there, this court directed the accused should be informed that the right has not attached and that they submit the test based upon the assertion of the right, shall constitute refusal to take the test, resulting in the suspension of driving. But he was already, uh, you know, he was already told he had the right to counsel, and did the officers tell him that, oh, we're sorry, we made a mistake, you don't have it this time? Well, they explained to him, uh, and it's on the videotape, that he would have a right to counsel if he's being asked questions, but he doesn't have one just for this limited inquiry regarding the uh, implied consent law. What about the lack of the requirement for finding a probable cause that's in the statute in question? Um, First, I would say that I think there are, the statute itself, the point of that is uh, with the most serious accidents, the ones where someone dies or a serious bodily injury, we have a very significant interest in finding the cause of the accident. And so in in that case, uh, we made this implied consent law where everyone by virtue of choosing to drive in Indiana, has agreed to uh, submit to this testing. But they have the ability under the law to refuse. But if they refuse, they have the civil infraction and the suspension. And the the constitutionality of that Section 7 has already been established, right, by case law? Correct. Uh, Repeatedly, um, I I think the best example of that would be uh, temporally, where where this court went over the other cases that had talked about in the past. Uh, and again found it was not coercive both of the federal and the state constitution and it, that was an opinion by this court but they sought review uh, 
on transfer by the Indian Supreme Court now is denied, and they saw a review uh, on a written certiorari at the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was denied on the Fourth Amendment issue. Does the so has been well with the, the question of probable cause, at least in the facts and circumstances of this case, does the state concede that there wasn't probable cause, setting aside the issue of whether or not, just based on the statute, it would be required? Uh, no, Your Honor, and um, we, we see that brief too, because I think if they really believe there wasn't probable cause here, they would be arguing that uh, it was disingenuous and an illusory threat for the officer to say he would seek a warrant if uh, consent didn't occur. So I think that would be the focus of their appeal if they really believe that. But I think more importantly, if you look at the facts here, we, we know that he's acting frantically. He was in this very serious accident where he was control over someone. He was extremely nervous, gulping down water as a testimony, sticking his leg out like he's trying to escape. Um, but we also know, you can tell from the video that the officer is not familiar with him. And so you don't have in that video where they're talking about his priors, but we do have in the record that he has a significant list of prior uh, drug um, convictions and that um, what chased by the So I think it's very clear that had he raised that issue below those issues, that evidence would become relevant. And the evidence that the, what the officers knew about his drug history um, probably would have been presented at that point if they'd been asked, did you have probable cause for a blood draw? But they didn't need to, was always the state's point, because under the implied consent law, if we have the most serious of accidents, a serious bodily injury or death, that alone is enough to ask the question or tell them that if they don't consent, they're going to have a suspension. So he, he was found not guilty of aggravated battery, right? That's correct. So the only charge he was convicted of was the intoxicated resulting in serious bodily injury, correct? Correct. And what, were there other charges the state might have brought? Um, he wasn't found with any drugs on him at the time. Um, as far as uh, I, I think it'd be, a, I think there's definitely some infractions that could be charged. Yeah, was there a felony record driving, or was that reckless driving just a misdemeanor? Um, he does have uh, at least two convictions for operating after suspended for life in a prior OWI, I believe. Okay, but I mean, I, I was curious why the state pursued those particular charges when it seems like there would have been other, you know, aptly applied charges to, to bring. Well, I, you could have brought lessers, of course, of the OWI. Um, I'm not sure what else you're suggesting. Um, I, I've got a question if I could. Sure. Um, what is the status when he's in the car? I, you, you know, the appellant's point of view is that he's under arrest or detained and in custody. And, and what is the state's position uh, with his status in the car? Because he certainly was in handcuffs. He was certainly told um, that he couldn't leave, whether implied or direct, uh, by placed in the back of a police cruiser and put in handcuffs. What is the status of him uh, when he's asked the implied consent or read the implied consent by the officer. And we don't have the record fully developed on that because that wasn't the issue below it. Obviously, you don't need it under this. I, I think there's definitely a lot of evidence to find that he was in custody at the time. Miranda was already read at that point. So, how does that then, if he's in custody, how does that, um, from your point of view, impact the viability of his consent? 
or change the analysis, if at all? I don't think it does. I, I guess it's not the distinction this court wanted to draw of how this case is different than every other uh, implied consent case. Possibly that would be a way to draw a line, but I don't think you should. I, I think the uh, concern about finding the cause of the accident are the same. That support making this different. That we want to quickly find out how this very serious bodily injury or death accident occurred under the statute. Uh, and we're up against the time, not only the three hour limit in the statute, but a lot of drugs anticipate even faster than that, like heroin or cocaine. Uh, you, if you're trying to figure out what caused the, the wreck, it's just a race. Um, well, there is really no three hour limit with drugs, is there? I mean, there is with alcohol, but when you get into drugs, don't the metabolites in that drug stay in the system? And and doesn't intoxication in Indiana, when it's not alcohol, it does. Is it based on how many millimeters, how many uh, grams, how many of that in a system? Isn't it just based? It's in your system, so you're intoxicated. That's correct. Yeah. So the, the three hour, the three hours is like meh. It's statutory, you know, even though right. all some of this may not be there. But I think that when you're the thing I think get wrong about, about the drugs are some are incredibly split, but like you almost never see a test positive for heroin because it leaves the system like 20 minutes. And if we don't have evidence on that here, have they uh, directly challenged the statute, saying the statute itself? Well, heroin's, a, heroin's an opiate, isn't it? And doesn't don't opiates test in the system longer? Um, I, I some do. I know they're in, they, the metabolite is uh, morphine, and there's a longer period of morphine where you can find morphine in the blood afterwards. But, it's, but his his drug of choice apparently was methamphetamine and amphetamine. Uh, that's what he tested positive for here in the metabolite of it. Okay. There's, there's another issue that was raised by appellant in, in his briefs, and that has to do with lay uh, witness testimony opining as to uh, Mr. Bowman's intent as he's driving, driving down the road in his truck. Um, statements like, the person riding the motorcycle was scared and wanted out, and the person driving the truck was trying to get him out. Uh, what about uh, the admissibility of those statements? I mean, they came in. Was it error for the trial court to allow those statements? It's definitely a difficult decision for a trial court for all this testimony. There's a very fine line between what, describing what you're perceiving when you're watching someone chase someone and giving an opinion of intent. Um, as we write in our brief of appellate, I think some of that, that there were some objections, but there was also a lot of statements that they were challenging that weren't really objected to. But I think the most important thing for that is any error that would be harmless, mainly if for no other reason you just put in the aggravated battery, which is really what that spoke to, uh, for the operating intoxicated uh, resulting in serious bodily injury, all that they had to be is some evidence that it was proximate cause of the uh, collision, and I don't think that can really be questioned on the record we have um, with the investigation showing that he was driving over the speed limit, left of center, um, following too closely, all those uh, things. I think it becomes a non-legal issue here. It, it definitely was a hard decision, I think, for the trial court. I, I think they got it right, but minds can disagree on that, that we definitely defer to the trial court's decisions so, so it's your position that there was probable cause? 
I don't think it matters, but I don't think it's really developed well because it's under the uh, chapter of implied consent. It's not required to ask the question. At the end of the day, our position is that this was a simple consent. So, so if under that part of the statute, um, you know, you have to take the test within like three hours, why do we even talk about consent or warrants or search? Well, you have a right to refuse, and that's um, the sports opinion in Duncan that we cite, that you can absolutely still refuse, even though you have implicitly consented by deciding to drive in Indiana, we still allow the refusal to occur. And if so, uh, there'll be a hearing on the infraction, and only at that hearing, a judge will, um, if he finds that you have viable, was he suspended for life prior to this? Yeah, you mentioned something about that. No record on that. There is testimony at the uh, suppression hearing that he provided officers some sort of license and driving privileges. What the testimony said. So I think we describe what it was. I'm not really sure what he was giving up. I, I don't think he was what a normal person might have considered a driver's license. I was just, I was just curious because you mentioned the suspended for life and it just twigged. You know, my mind that you know, if he refused, what's the big deal? <laughs> but yeah, that, that was not at all. So okay. I really can't. I don't know more about that. Uh, one thing about the uh, right to counsel thing that I'd also like to mention is that they, they do mention in their brief that uh, he asked about uh, having telling his wife to call his attorney father or call my attorney. And uh, they say in the brief that on uh, page 36, the officer said he didn't do that. But I looked all pages around there, there's no testimony to that. We don't know whether or not he actually met told his girlfriend because it doesn't look good if he was actually married. But what we do know from the testimony is that the officers tried to uh, talk to her in her statement about how the accident occurred. And she said she wouldn't speak to the police because she was waiting to speak to her attorney. Waiting. And that's um, page 164 of the transcript line two. So I, I think that argument's so, so, so if the police say you have the right to talk to an attorney, I'm talking about the initial Miranda warning, you have the right to talk to an attorney, to have an attorney present when you're, when you're questioned, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that he invokes that right and then says, I want to talk to my attorney, what is the deputy's, um, I, I guess, what do they have to do at that point? Do they have to allow him to talk to an attorney? Is there a time frame? Um, I mean, what is their duty at that point in time? Well, there's no right to, just because you're arrested doesn't mean you can't even talk to an attorney. What it tells you is either you're being questioned, and then you have a right under the federal constitution, or the state constitution, you've identified a couple other places that uh, they cite. Um, and the one, uh, if you're being offered a uh, polygraph, and the other one, Molinsky, um, it's even really not a new right to attorney because Malinsky, and we're talking about someone who's already being questioned and has already waived the right to attorney, uh, being required to be told that their attorney was present at the police okay. station. And it, it is, so generally, it can sound a question. And that wasn't occurring here other than the uh, informing him of the uh, implied consent law. Which under under case law already, just implying of the implied consent law doesn't invoke the purdle right, so they don't have a right to an attorney at that point. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, and that, that was this court found that clearly in Adasik, and, and I also I, I think we, the, this court back in uh, Davis under the federal constitution made the observation that the decision to take a breath test 
and potential license suspension for refusal are administrative in, na in nature that it doesn't uh, invoke any criminal rights under the uh, Sixth Amendment. What if in this case they had offered him a portable breath test and he had taken it? Um, what would happen at that point? Would we, I mean, would we be here at that point? Um, it's hard to say. We don't know exactly what they suspected, uh, why they wanted to take the blood draw, other than they're actually entitled to under the implied consent law. Uh, but I think that we have evidence here that there was probable cause or something that they weren't certain that much were involved. So we don't know. They, they, they are allowed under implied consent to offer the test. And so they could have given that and found 0.0, .0 decided that they still wanted a public test. So there's a state constitutional argument raised as well. And um, your talks about the Litchfield factors. Do you want to discuss that at all? Um, I know there's a split uh, between counsel and this court right now about whether or not uh, consent is just with other consent, you don't even have to go into the Litchfield factors. And I think that's the right analysis. Um, and Keith Casino's opinion recently found that to be true. Uh, There's also the Eileen opinion just last month that recognized the split talked about that. Um, and I think that makes the most sense because at the end of the day, you know, consent is is waiving your rights to uh, stop the you know, seizure from happening. But if we were to do the Litchfield analysis, we would look at the degree uh, of intrusion, the law enforcement needs, the degree of concern. And I think whenever there's consent, it's reasonable to find that the degree of intrusion is very low when the party consenting to have that intrusion upon themselves. And there are very important needs here to keep our highways safe by identifying the cause of these most serious of accidents and keeping people who are um, not following the law and risking the lives of others by driving and carrying off the road. If there are no further questions, the state asks for the violence condition be affirmed. Any other questions? I'm good. All right, thank you, Council. Thank you. Ms. Uliana, you have five minutes for rebuttal. I want to start by clarifying that um, Article 1, Section 13 certainly is not limited to interrogations, and our court has expansively uh, applied Article 1, Section 13 over and over again. It has been applied to polygraphs. It has been applied to, to determinations of whether a person is going to waive their right, uh, waive a constitutional right. And it applies when one, you're in custody, and two, it is a critical stage. And a critical stage of a proceeding is when a defendant, a person, a Hoosier, uh, somebody who has no legal experience is faced with decisions that involve the intricacies of the law. And this is exactly what this is. Chris Bobbitt was convicted because he consented to a blood draw. That's it. That was the um, evidence that caused them to file the level four felony for which he was convicted. And that was the beginning and the end of his case. And he had every right to have help deciding whether he should have uh, made that decision. And most reasonable attorneys would have told him not to because they're going under a section of the law that doesn't require probable cause. And if you listen to him, if you talk to him, if you watch him on the video, he's not acting in And that is what you need to get somebody's blood. Um, second, I want to bring up that the fact that uh, Bauman's wife or girlfriend is talking 
to an attorney and wait or waiting to talk to a court attorney shows the very problem in this case. Chris Bowman should have been able to do the same thing. If he's not in custody, this is exactly the type of situation where you call your attorney. The only reason he wasn't sitting there waiting on his attorney is because he was in a truck in Hancock. And that is why, if we really do have a more expansive right to counsel under the Indian Constitution, it has to apply here when a person requests. It, it's also slightly disingenuous to say that there is no way that a person should have the, can have the time to have a reasonable opportunity uh, to call their attorney. That's just not right in today's day and age. I mean, police officers are getting warrants all the time when people refuse right that is because they have technology. And suspect can call somebody who looked it up on their phone and within 15 minutes and call someone and ask for advice. You know, that's just not correct. It's very, it, well, here, there were 37 minutes that Chris Baldwin had while he sat there. He could have called and looked, right? And we were arguing over whether that's too long to detain him. Well, certainly long enough for him to call. And this is an issue of first impression. You know, I heard in the AG's presentation this case gives. I've never heard of that before. There's a lot of cases cited in those briefs, and gives is not one of them. And I've read every single one of those cases, and not one of them deal with this situation under Article 1, Section 13. It is broader, and there are other states that do this, and it works, and they have the broader rights also. Um, Pearl is a different thing. Again, it's when we have to proactively advise someone of their constitutional rights. That's different. It doesn't mean that you don't have the right to counsel, when clearly our law says if you're in a critical stage and if you're in custody. So, so what you're asking for is to insert what you called the case of, you know, a first impression or new law, insert within Chapter 7 of the implied consent statute a right for meaningful or an opportunity, maybe, for meaningful consultation with counsel. Is that kind of... Only one right? You don't okay. have to give an advisement. This is what uh, Oregon said in their similar uh, constitutional rights, that when requested, you are to be given a reasonable opportunity to consult with your attorney. You know, we shouldn't be in the business of interfering with people learning their rights. You know, people should be fully informed to make an intelligent and voluntary decision. And then the one last thing I want to say um, about this idea that there's probable cause for the police just the state just to bring it up. They have their opportunity, and it's the state's burden to prove that consent is voluntary. And the trial attorney is very clear that he's attacking the voluntariness of this uh, consent. And when you do that, you open up the totality of circumstances. You need his best probable cause, and the officer got on the scene and said why he did what he did, and none of it related to intoxication, because there is no evidence of intoxication. So there is a lack of probable cause in that. I don't think it's fair that the state's arguing that they should get they didn't have a proper opportunity because they certainly had a proper opportunity at the suppression committee to justify the officer's actions and they just failed to do so. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Um, this concludes the formal part of our oral argument in this case. Uh, what we are going to do is we are going to come out from behind the bench and answer some questions uh, with one large, huge caveat. Um, we cannot answer any questions about the facts of this case. So as much as 
everything you just heard has prompted questions in your mind, we cannot address that. So um, with that one little distinction, uh, we'll be happy to address anything else that you would like to ask us. So since we're here, we're going to come out from behind and answer some questions.